I'm Elizabeth Slattery. And I'm Tiffany Bates. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. This week, we're talking about President Trump's Supreme Court shortlist, and we interview law professor and SCOTUS watcher Josh Blackman. So uh, Josh Blackman is an associate professor of law from the South Texas College of Law in Houston, where he specializes in constitutional law, and we're happy to have him in the studio at Heritage with us uh, today. Josh has written a couple of books, Unprecedented, The Constitutional Challenge to Obamacare, and Unraveled, Obamacare's Religious Liberty uh, and Executive Power. I might suggest that your next one be called Unmoored, The Jurisprudence of Anthony Kennedy. Uh, <laughs> Josh is an adjunct scholar at the uh, the Cato Institute. He's the founder of the Harlan Institute, and and he's the founder of Fantasy SCOTUS, the internet's premier SCOTUS fantasy league, which he's here to talk about today. So Fantasy SCOTUS is a website that lets people make predictions. And when I say people, I mean nerds like Tiffany and me, make predictions about how the Supreme Court's cases will be decided. Um, so Josh, thanks for joining us. And maybe you could just give us a little sense of how you came up with the idea for Fantasy SCOTUS. Well, thank you so much for having me, both Tiffany and Elizabeth, our old friends. Um, I actually invented Fantasy SCOTUS in 2009, and it was mostly a joke at the time, the court had recently argued the Citizens United case, this campaign finance case. And I was joking with a friend, you know, wouldn't it be funny if Vegas took odds on the Supreme Court? And I said, you know, wouldn't it be even cooler if people could, you know, predict Supreme Court cases like they predict fantasy football? And then a light bulb clicked. <laughs> and within about three or four weeks, I was able to cobble together a fairly basic site I launched it the morning of the 2009 Federal Society Convention. It was November. Within a couple hours, thousands of people had signed up. It went totally viral. I had no idea what I was doing. It was <laughs> it, it, it blew up. And so now we're almost in our, I think, our eighth season, if that's right. Uh, we've had tens of thousands of people predicting. I now work with a group called Lex Predict. We have a sophisticated uh, uh, computer program that can actually predict cases. We have our um, uh, uh, crowds who are predicting cases. And most recently, we had a feature to predict the justices. We did this when Justice Stevens retired. We called Justice Kagan. We did this for Justice Scalia's seat. We called Justice Gorsuch well in advance of anyone else. So we're very excited to see if we can predict the next Supreme Court justice as well if a nomination opens up. Yeah. So who is leading the pack right now for the next possible vacancy? So at the moment, the leader of the pack is Justice Don Willett of the Texas Supreme Court. Uh, uh, most people may know Justice Willett from Twitter. He has a very uh, life-size personality on social media. He has very funny memes. He's always on top of things. Um, he also has um, great Instagram pages and Facebook pages as well. Oh, his 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 social media prowess is unparalleled, <laughs> um, and it's also noteworthy that that Justice Willett was one of the few people who met with then President elect Trump at Trump Tower uh, uh, during the run up to the nomination. So he's definitely at the at the top of the pack. So who's your prediction? Who do you think's gonna gonna get the the nod? I think a lot of it has to do with who the retiring justice is um, in the event that Justice Kennedy retires. Um, if you think this town is crazy with Comey, right? Wait, <laughs> wait till you see what happens when Justice Kennedy retires. Um, I think it will be like thermonuclear warfare. So there might be some uh, pressure on the president to appoint someone um, more moderate to replace Kennedy, although I don't think Trump cares about what people think. Um, but with that being said, perhaps one way that Trump could assuage uh, uh, concerns with Justice Kennedy is if the replacement is a former Kennedy clerk. Now, 
Justice Gorsuch was actually a, a clerk for Justice Kennedy. He was a, he also with Justice White. They, they split time. Uh, but there are a couple of people on the short list, uh, Judge Kethledge, Judge Kavanaugh, who's not on the short list, but it's been mentioned. He may also be in the running as Kennedy clerks who could fill in for uh, the unmoored seat, as Elizabeth, as Elizabeth put it a moment ago. So what do you think Justice Kennedy would do in retirement? We've talked before about what some of the other retired justices do. Um, what do you think he'd do with his, all that free time? You know, if you've ever seen the movie History of the World Part One, it's good to be the king, right? Um, <laughs> I don't know what he would do. I, I hope he has a, a more relaxed life than some other former politicians. Um, Justice Stevens has gone on the road attacking Justice Scalia every five minutes. I hope he doesn't do that. Um, Justice Kennedy is in his own little world. In fact, we are in his world. And I get the sense that he thinks he's being a regular, run-of-the-mill um, a responsible justice. I'm sure he'll be proud. People will give him awards. He'll go to Europe and collect accolades. Um, I envision him going around giving speeches about dignity. Oh, beautiful. And the, of- and, and the beauty of those yeah. speeches is they have no legal effect. <laughs> like he gives these speeches yeah. now. They're written and they change the laws of all 50 states overnight. Uh, uh, but once you're a retired justice, thankfully, your speeches only reach those within the sound of your voice. Very true. So that's a great segue to uh, – to our discussion of some of the the leading shortlisters. So President Trump, when uh, during the campaign, put out a list, two lists of 21 potential nominees for uh, future Supreme Court vacancies. So we're going to talk about a a few who are off the list and a few who are on the list. Tiffany, do you want to start things off? Yeah. So first, we're going to talk about uh, Thomas Hardiman, who um, was the alleged runner-up for the seat that Gorsuch um, ultimately took. So uh, Judge Hardiman has been serving on the Third Circuit uh, since 2006 when George W. Bush appointed him. Um, before that, during law school, you know, he's a down-to-earth guy. He drove a taxi part-time um, to pay for law school. And then in private practice, um, one of the most famous cases he um, he was on, he represented on a pro bono basis, um, Allegheny County, Pennsylvania, against a lawsuit filed by some atheists who objected to um, the display of a Ten Commandments plaque in the county courthouse. Um, and he... Um, and his colleagues won that challenge successfully. Um, it's also one of the reasons um, one of the reasons people thought he he made the shortlist was because uh, President Trump's sister, Marianne Trump Barry, serves on the third uh, Third Circuit too, and seems to like him a lot. Now, uh, Marianne Trump Barry is, of course, a relatively liberal uh, liberal leaning judge. But as we've discussed before, you know, sometimes liberals and conservatives uh, end up being friends on the court. So I, I don't think that's necessarily a knock against Judge Hardiman. Yes, um, I agree. And uh, he's written some good opinions and good dissents about the Second Amendment. And I'm sure if he gets if he gets the nod, he will be um, questioned about those a lot. Well, well, one funny story about just, uh, Judge Hardiman, you mentioned he was a taxi driver. He actually put his uh, evasive driving maneuver techniques to the test recently. Um, so because of all things D.C., on the day that Trump said he would announce his nominees for the Supreme Court, uh, reporters were staking out Judge Hardiman's house in Pittsburgh. <laughs> and um, uh, Judge Hardiman uh, got the call that it wasn't him. But – he had other ideas in mind. Uh, he decided to put those drivers to the test. So he left his home in Pittsburgh and he noticed that some guy was tailing him. There was actually a reporter, I think from CNN, who followed him all the way to a Sheets <laughs> gas station in the middle of Pennsylvania. And the reporter said, oh, look, he's driving towards Washington, D.C. Now, 
if anyone knew the roads of Pennsylvania, I, I clerked there, I, I went to school there, I know these roads, that's not how you get to D.C. In fact, he was going to visit his friend, uh, the chief judge of the, of, the, of the Third Circuit, Judge Smith. Um, but he, he put this wild goose chase on and in the process kept the suspense so that when President Trump uh, emerged from the uh, White House with Judge Gorsuch by his side, it was actually a surprise. So I, I can imagine that, 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 that Judge Hardin gets some, gets some credibility points for that evasive maneuvers. Uh, but as a judge, he's very, very well respected. Uh, he's very down to earth. Um, uh, he's been strong in the Second Amendment. He's been strong on religious liberty. Um, uh, he, he really has great credentials. I think he's about 50 or 51 years of age. He's, he's right in that sweet spot of where to be. And uh, I can imagine how Donald Trump, you know, the, the, the gruff person that he is, could have really related to Judge Hardiman uh, meeting him in Trump Tower when they did. Um, but, but I'd be very, very happy with Judge Hardiman on the bench. So another uh, possible shortlister who is on the list is Raymond Kethledge of the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals. Uh, so most notably, he clerked for Justice Kennedy. Uh, so if, if he is the nod, if he gets the nod, this could be kind of a, a reassuring to the justice that you know his legacy is in good hands. Uh, Judge Kethledge um, also worked for the Senate Judiciary Committee. He worked for Spencer uh, Spencer Abraham of Michigan, and uh, he he was in private practice and he was counsel at Ford Motor Company for uh, for some time. In terms of his jurisprudence, two of his uh, cases that that stand out for uh, for conservatives is uh, he was involved in the uh, in a in a case dealing with the IRS Tea Party targeting scandal, and he also wrote a decision um, that the Wall Street Journal selected as its opinion of the year in 2014 involving the EEOC. They had gone after uh, Kaplan, um, the uh, online uh, for-profit education company, uh, for its use of uh, background checks for hiring. And, uh, you know, the, the claim that this had a disparate impact on African-Americans. And in his opinion, rejecting the EEOC's argument, he pointed out that, in fact, the EEOC used the same background check for, for its purposes. So that was uh, some, uh, some sweet justice for, for the EEOC. Uh, turning next to somebody who's not on the list is Brett Kavanaugh of the D.C. Circuit. He was appointed by uh, President President George W. Bush. Uh, 2006, he was confirmed. And uh, he also clerked for, for Justice Kennedy um, after clerking for uh, Alex Kaczynski of the Ninth Circuit, who is um, for many years been a feeder judge uh, to, to Justice Kennedy. Um, in terms of his background, he was an associate independent counsel uh, during the Clinton years, and he was the principal author of the the Star Report on the Monica Lewinsky scandal. So I'm, so I'm sure he's got some great stories to tell about that. In terms of his notable opinions, he wrote one finding that the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau structure is unconstitutional. In a Clean Air Act case, he dissented from his court's ruling that the EPA could basically ignore cost-benefit analysis when it's considering a proposed rule. The Supreme Court later vindicated uh, Judge Kavanaugh's position. He also wrote wrote an opinion uh, in in a dispute dealing with uh, nuclear waste storage at Yucca Mountain in, in Nevada, and uh, this came out of the context of the Obama administration trying to ignore federal law, uh, which was a highlight of the Obama years. And uh, I would point out that conservatives uh, he upset conservatives in one case um, in 2011. It was the first one of the first constitutional challenges to Obamacare, uh, where he said that the federal courts lacked jurisdiction to hear the case at that time, uh, and that was upsetting to many conservatives, and ultimately the, another, another challenge ended up going to the Supreme Court. 
Um, so another person who is not on the list but um, who could still be a possible candidate is Jeff Sutton from the Sixth Circuit. Now, he's a you know a great conservative thinker and a terrific writer, and he's been on the Sixth Circuit for almost um, 15 years. He uh, also clerked on the Supreme Court, but for Justice Scalia, though Justice Powell originally hired him, um, but then he soon retired, and so... Um, Jeff Sutton did most of his work for Justice Scalia. Uh, Scalia is, you know, well known for not um, hiring clerks outside of the very, very top law schools. So he's reported to have said, um, I wouldn't have hired Jeff Sutton. For God's sake, he went to Ohio State. (laughs) Um, But later on, uh, Justice Scalia said he was one of his very best clerks and, um, quote, that he's one of my former clerks who I am most proud of. Now, Judge Sutton um, wrote an opinion in the same-sex marriage case in favor of a state upholding their traditional definitions of marriage, um, which caused the circuit split um, and ultimately allowed the Supreme Court um, to take that case. He has also written a lot about deference to agencies. And in fact, um, Gorsuch and Justices Scalia and Thomas, who have also written a lot about these issues, have cited um, Jeff Sutton in the process. I would also point out that he he also has a an Obamacare problem. Um, he he <laughs> issued problem. Obamacare problems. Obamacare problems. He uh, he issued an opinion, um, uh, much like Judge Kavanaugh, ruling in favor of the administration in the early in the early days of the Obamacare constitutional challenges. And unlike uh, Judge Kavanaugh, who who said that the courts lacked jurisdiction to hear the case at that time. Um, Judge Sutton felt that he, as a lower court judge, was restrained, uh, confined by by Supreme Court precedent in, in the way that he ruled. Yeah, so. if, if I may, uh, on the on the Obamacare decisions of both Judge Kavanaugh and Judge Sutton, their opinions are very unique. Most people never actually read them all. They're they're quite long. They didn't hold that the Commerce Clause permits Congress to mandate people buy insurance. That was the entire question. Can Congress make people buy insurance? Neither of them based the ruling on that ground. Um, Judge Kavanaugh's opinion was based on a fairly arcane provision of the tax code. In fact, I remember this during the oral argument. Kavanaugh was grilling the DOJ lawyer about some provision of the tax code. And one of the other judges asked the uh, the lawyer, do you even know what this provision is? And she was like, no, Your Honor. So it was a, it was a fairly esoteric opinion that effectively said because this, this, this tax hasn't yet been uh, 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 enforced, no one's paid it yet, that this challenge is premature. And in some respects, that has echoes of what John Roberts ultimately held uh, roughly a year later. Uh, a Kavanaugh strategy, as I wrote in my first book, Unprecedented, uh, influenced the government's litigation approach. Um, Judge Sutton had a had a very different opinion, and it was very pensive. It's a word I used to describe it. He was really thoughtful about it. He said, well, because the individual mandate may be constitutional for some people, I can't strike it down for everyone. That is, some people already have insurance, and then they're not subject to the mandate. So therefore, it's not unconstitutional as applied to them. It's a very – I'd never seen that anyone make the argument before, and no one made it since. So both Judges uh, Sutton and Kavanaugh um, had these very um, – Unfortunate luck of the draw with these panels that they were assigned to these cases, uh, but they had these very uh, uh, technical, esoteric opinions that didn't reach the core question of the scope of Congress's federal powers. But in the end, both their decisions were not uh, 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 resulting in the validation of Obamacare. So several of the other shortlisters uh, have uh, in recent months been appointed to federal appeals court vacancies. Uh, so we just wanted to flag those. Um, Amal Thapar was recently confirmed to the Sixth Circuit. 
uh, Court of Appeals. Joan Larson, who is a Michigan Supreme Court justice, she has been uh, nominated for another vacancy on the Sixth Circuit. David Strauss is a uh, justice on the Minnesota Supreme Court, and he was tapped for uh, an Eighth Circuit opening. And finally, uh, Colorado Supreme Court Justice Allison Ide has been nominated recently for uh, the uh, the vacancy on the Tenth Circuit less left by Neil Gorsuch. Um, so there are still many other people left on on the short list. And then, are, of course, there are other names that are floating out there uh, who didn't make it onto the list but may be considered nonetheless. And I should note that of the state Supreme Court justices on that list, only two have not been put on the federal bench or nominated. First is Tom Lee of Utah Supreme Court. There are no vacancies in Utah. The second <laughs> is Don Willett, who is who should be in all rights on the Fifth Circuit. And remarkably, despite months elapsing, we've not had any Fifth Circuit nominees for the great state of Texas. Um, there is apparently some inter, inter, interfighting between Senators Cruz, Senator Cornyn, and of all people, Gre- Governor Greg Abbott of Texas. I don't quite understand that. <laughs> but uh, Donnie Willett should be on the Fifth Circuit um, uh, sooner rather than later. There's no blue slip problem. He'll sail through. He'll have an gr- entertaining confirmation hearing. Um, <laughs> unless, unless President Trump is saving him for the Supreme Court, which I'd be okay with that. But we need the Fifth Circuit to be staffed promptly. So we'll wrap up with a round of Supreme Trivia, Uh-oh. shortlist edition, Uh-oh. where we're going to try to stump our guest. They, <laughs> so did, John, they, did, always wanted John, they did not warn me about this, but I will, I will do my best. Okay. Josh, first question. Which one-time shortlister from the George W. Bush administration has cited his form of exercise as a reason he was not selected as a nominee for the Supreme Court? J. Harvey Wilkinson? Yes, that's oh, correct. That's too easy. I know. <laughs> the, uh, Wil- Judge Wilkinson's famous for jogging around the track with his law clerks. And I'll give a related funny story. Um, Chief, uh, Chief Justice Rehnquist was eligible to have up to five law clerks, but he only selected three. Why? It makes good for doubles in tennis. And apparently <laughs> Ted Cruz learned to play tennis so he could tell Chief Justice Rehnquist during his interview, I like tennis. Um, <laughs> That's wonderful. So, uh, uh, That's hilarious. So the, the clerks and their, their athletic routines are, are, are well known. <laughs> yes. So it was J. Harvey Wilkinson. He's a judge on the Fourth Circuit. Um, and he says that President Bush asked him how he exercises. Um, judge Wilkinson said he ran three and a half miles every day. And President Bush uh, criticized him for that and said he should be doing cross-training <laughs> and go on the elliptical and the treadmill. Um, so <laughs> Judge Wilkinson says that's why he's not on the Supreme Court. Second question. Okay. Are you ready? Drum roll. How many shortlisters did President Ronald Reagan go through before replacing Justice Lewis Powell? Oh, uh, sh- do you mean how many nominees did he make or shortlisters? What do you mean shortlisters? How many people did he go through? Well, well first he, he nominated, of course, Judge Robert Bork. Uh, and, and that didn't go so well. And then he nominated Judge Douglas Ginsburg, and that didn't go so well. And then, of course, we have the Sacramento uh, uh, moderate, uh, uh, the Sacramento Republican, Anthony Kennedy, um, who was backed by Lawrence Tribe and others. Should have been the first sign something was up, and he was he was confirmed. Um, one funny note about the nomination, though, had uh, Reagan reversed it, Bork, Scalia, Scalia, Bork, right? Had Reagan put Bork up earlier, he would have sailed through. And then Scalia probably would sail through also. So the decision to make Scalia first, Bork second was oh, sad, <laughs> as they say. If only, you know, imagine the kind of court we could have had with the two of them. Or, or Edith Jones instead of David Souter. And that's correct. <laughs> so you're you're right that uh, it was Robert Bork who the Senate voted down, Doug Ginsburg who uh, withdrew his nomination. 
Uh, we won't get into the details. He was never actually formally nominated. That, that's he wasn't the cra- formally. Okay. He was, uh, he, because what happened with Ginsburg was this, that Nina, I think it was Nina Totenberg found this story out of nowhere that Ginsburg had smoked pot with his students or something. And he actually never actually was formally submitted to the Senate. Today, I think that would be actually a, a resume enhancer to smoke marijuana with your students. <laughs> but uh, back then, you know, just say no, Bill Brennett, they couldn't have that. And then, of course, Anthony Kennedy was confirmed in 1988. I would point out that our former boss and then Attorney General Ed Meese was suggested as a nominee, and he oh. allegedly said it would be a life sentence to law school. Ooh. <laughs> oh, if General Meese was in the court, we'd be in a much better place. So third question. Okay. What Democratic shortlister did Justice Scalia allegedly request as a nominee? Oh, Justice Ginsburg. Oh, oh well, well he, he asked for her later. Are you talking about in the 80s? No. Repeat the question. What Democratic shortlister did Justice Scalia allegedly request as a nominee on the court? Recently? Oh, oh, well, he Justice Justice Kagan. Oh, I know this story. I thought <laughs> you well. Once, once um, uh, there's a story when Justice uh, it was back in the '90s. I forgot who Clinton told us. Some uh, Scalia told someone in the Clinton White House that he wanted. Oh, this was a story. Someone asked um, Scalia. Who would you want on the court? Or no, who would you want to be with on a deserted island, Lawrence Tribe or Mario Cuomo? And he said Ruth Bader Ginsburg. <laughs> and that's how RBG was nominated. Um, uh, uh, in 2009, when the John Paul, uh, sorry, when the David Souter nomination was coming up, uh, was it Rahm Emanuel he told? I think Scalia told Rahm Emanuel, or, or maybe it was David Axelrod. David Axelrod, Axelrod yeah. yeah. David yeah. Axelrod, that he should appoint Elena Kagan to the Supreme Court, which I should add is a slight to Justice Sotomayor, who was also on the short list. And we don't need to forget Lawrence Tribe's letter of recommendation for his former boss, uh, where he said that Justice Kagan would be a much better selection for the Supreme Court. Yes, that that is correct. Uh, So when Justice David Souter retired in 2009, President Obama was considering his Solicitor General, Elena Kagan, for the nomination, but he ultimately chose Second Circuit Court of Appeals Judge Sonia Sotomayor. Uh, David Axelrod tells the story, which may be apocryphal, uh, that Scalia said to him, and this is a quote, I have no illusions that your man will nominate someone who shares my orientation, but I hope he sends us someone smart. Let me put a finer point on it. I hope he sends us... Elena Kagan. Oh, that's such, good, that's such good Scalia. Another, another, another related story during the White House Correspondent Dinner, I think it was in 2010, Scalia made a bet with Rahm Emanuel that Obamacare wouldn't pass. Uh, <laughs> it passed. Yeah. I wonder what the wager was. <laughs> okay, Josh, final question. Okay. Who was the first Supreme Court nominee to testify before the Ju- Senate Judiciary Committee? Um, openly? Uh, oh, God. Uh, well, Brandeis didn't actually testify for himself. Was it Frankfurter? Uh, no, but close. It was Harlan Fisk Stone. Yeah. Okay. And Teapot Dome. Teapot Dome, right? Yeah. He um, briefly appeared before the committee um, for questioning in 1925. Um, then in 1939, um, the senators asked Felix Frankfurter to come in for questioning. Um, he refused at first and said that all of his views were already a matter of public record. Um, but then he eventually complied. Because I think with, with Stone, they were asking about the Teapot Dome scandal, and there were no questions about his uh, judicial uh, philosophy. I think that was it. Yeah, I, I, I have an right. article about that. I, I wrote with Randy Barnett in the uh, National Affairs last year. But Frankfurt was the first to actually talk about his jurisprudence. The Brandeis hearings, which were elaborate, Brandeis didn't actually testify. They had other people come in to talk on his behalf. Yeah. Um, and then since John Marshall Harlan in 1955, all Supreme Court nominees have had hearings before the committee. The pleasure of appearing before the senators. <laughs> yeah, with Wizard White, though, they basically asked my football the entire time. There were no actual law questions. <laughs> it, was, it, it, it was a breeze. 
Well, you did a great job. We we had a hard time stumping you. We'll have to work on harder questions in the future. Uh, but we want to thank you for joining thank us Thank you so much. Uh, this today. was a pleasure. Thanks for listening to SCOTUS 101. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud. And you can also follow us on Twitter at Tiffany H. Bates and at E.H. Slattery. And at Josh M. Blackman, if you will. <laughs>